I'm Alan Cornett, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Hi, welcome to the pilot episode of the Eat Kentucky Podcast. This is your host, Alan Cornett. Thank you for joining me at the start of this new project. Eat Kentucky has existed as a website and on Instagram and Facebook for the past five years. You can keep up with those social media posts at Eat Kentucky. Now, Eat Kentucky is venturing into the podcasting universe. The Eat Kentucky podcast is an exploration and celebration of Kentucky, our wonderful food and culture. We will talk to chefs and writers and personalities and anyone else of interest. Kentucky and food will be our anchor, but sometimes we may drift a bit if that's where the conversation takes us. I'm eager to explore Kentucky's vast and vibrant food scene. We also have one of the very best podcast themes around, written and performed specially for the Eat Kentucky podcast by Lexington musicians Art Mize and Diane Timmons. Thank you for listening. I'm excited about what's to come. In this premiere episode, I talked to Louisville-based food writer, radio personality, and podcaster Ashley Stevens. Ashley reported for Louisville Public Radio, WFPL, and recently began writing as a culture reporter for Salon.com. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, on NPR, and in a host of other outlets. Ashley always seeks out the unexpected story and angle. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did chatting. Hi, I am here with Ashley Stevens of Salon Magazine. It's great to have you with me, Ashley. Oh, thanks for having me. And you have been exploring Kentucky food and other things for a few years now. And I wanted to get some of your takes on Kentucky food. You're based in Louisville, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I, um, I've i lived in Louisville since I was about college age. I moved to Lexington briefly, but I... Uh, I moved back to Louisville a couple of years, years ago. Well, it's great. I thought that you had been here and maybe give us a little bit of Lexington versus Louisville perspective as we go along versus is not an antagonistic <laughs> uh, uh, term in this context. But so my first question for you is, what is your favorite Kentucky food? Oh, I am a hot brown person. Um, I too so am a hot I, brown person. So. Right. Like I know that some people, they gained the freshman 15. When I discovered the hot brown though, I gained the hot brown 15. Um, <laughs> I, I went around town living here in Louisville and tried a couple different, many varieties actually ranging from the iconic one at the Brown Hotel to yes, there was a, the Twig and Leaf, which is a diner here in Louisville that... Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't an amazing version, but it was a version, and I tried it. So I have uh, I've done my own personal hot brown tour of the city. Well, I can appreciate that. I will say that the um, the, the hot brown at the Brown is the best that I've had. I'm pretty sure, and I was skeptical going into it just because I feared. Maybe skeptical wasn't the right word. Fearful may have been the right, maybe the right word, because I wasn't sure if it was going to live up to the hype. Oh, sure. But, but I really thought that it did. It was. It had the most sophisticated flavor of of a hot brown that I'd had, 
and that was that was fun. I'd like I want to try another, try it again. No, it's stellar, but surprisingly one of the best versions that I had. So the brown hotel version is up here, and you can't see my hands right now, but you know we're way above my head right now. But coming in a close second was surprisingly the hot brown version at Wild Eggs, the breakfast chain, yes, the restaurant. I have, because it has I have it, had yes. that, I've had that hot brown. It, With the egg on top, it's yes. it's decadent. Yeah, it is very good, and I I I do like breakfast variants on hot browns, and so whenever I run across one, I always try it, just because I'm curious. And it it is a food I think that lends itself well to sort of a breakfast take, actually. It does. And then in Lexington, there was that restaurant Dudley's that was around for a little while and they had hot brown scallops, which I was skeptical of initially because I'm not a huge scallops and cream sauce person, but uh, I was converted. It was it was delicious. Yeah, the hot, the hot brown's an interesting food because it it is one of those rare foods that really is almost entirely limited to Kentucky, because if you get outside of the state, absolutely no one has any idea what you're talking about if you bring up a hot brown. Right. But... No, it's true. They're like, is it dessert? Is it something dirty? What is happening here? You <laughs> exactly. Know? But it's, I, I, I feel like it's practically a perfectly conceptualized food. And so it's, it's amazing to me that it hasn't caught on other places, but we'll keep it as our, our little open secret here in Kentucky, I guess. Do you know how the hot brown came to be? Have you heard the story well, yet? Uh, well, go ahead and, and enlighten us. I have heard a story about it, but tell me your story. Uh, well, so the story that was told to me, and it's the story that's kind of jotted down throughout history about the hot brown, is that it was literally created to be the ideal hangover food because you would have people that were partying at the Brown Hotel, which was the place to be. And this is, you know, century ago, essentially, and um, roaring 20s, that kind of thing. And they decided, okay, we're going to take the bread that we're going to be using for breakfast. It was a pseudo breakfast food, but they wanted something, again, decadent with that cream sauce and the tomato and the thick sliced turkey. And it was served to people who had been drinking, partying, and it was just prepped there in the kitchen. And I think that uh, you, you can totally taste that legacy when you're eating it today. It's delicious. That makes it a very appropriate Kentucky food then, I think. Sort of our flagship Indeed. Our flagship food. So you have recently started at Salon. That's a, a pretty recent uh, switch. What what that is? It was about a month ago. Um, you know, I Salon is a great publication, and recently they launched a food vertical, which I was incredibly excited to get involved in. And it has a strong Kentucky connection. Actually, my editor Aaron Keen was the arts and culture reporter at. Louisville's NPR affiliate, and I ended up taking her job when she went to Salon, and I ended up following her there. So oh, that gotcha. was kind of okay. the trajectory. I, wasn't, yeah. I see. I wasn't aware of that uh, of that connection. Was that that was WFPL? Is that correct? Correct. Yep. And you were there for how long? Three years. Okay. So to any listeners, there's uh, an archive of your of many stories by Ashley at WFPL's uh, website. Uh, some, some of them, or at least a lot of them, I guess, with accompanying audio. So we can, we can hear your NPR voice there. 
Right, right. We're not doing NPR voice right now, but you can get a taste of it there. That's right. Now, you you were editor of a segment known as Curious Louisville. Tell me a little bit about yes. Curious Louisville. That's right. I was a co-producer of a segment called Curious Louisville, and it was powered by Harkin, which is this great software that's offered up to newsrooms across the country And it assists newsrooms in putting together sort of a package that you can distribute to the public and allow them to directly ask the newsroom questions that they have about the city and the people who live there and its history. And I loved it. I love people-driven, community-driven journalism. So we would answer questions ranging from, this is a morbid one, but it was one of my favorites, what happens to the Louisville Zoo animals when they die? Um, Uh, (laughs) Or like, what happens when... You know, what, a, so what does happen to them? Well, um, so there is a burial ground at the zoo, but I think more important than that is the connection that the zoo staff had with the animals. So the story took an emotional turn that I wasn't necessarily anticipating. But, um, you know, I spoke with some people who worked there about just how heartbroken they were to where I'm not sure if you're a pet person, Alan, but we have lots I, of cats uh, in my home. Lots of cats. I'm a dog person, and I know just the tremendous heartbreak of when a pet passes away. And these people, they work with the animals at the zoo on a day-to-day basis, and they feel similarly. It's like a coworker or somebody that you care for passing away. Um, But then the story took a humorous turn in that I went to Bellarmine University, which is a small Catholic college here in Louisville. And... um, there was this urban legend, I suppose, on campus about how a professor had been gifted a giraffe and oh. stuck it in a kiddie pool on the top of one of the buildings because he didn't have storage for it in um, now, in his lab this, at the time. Li- okay, so this is not a live giraffe that you're talking about. This is not a live giraffe. This okay. is a giraffe cadaver, I suppose. I but um, so by the time that I got to university, there was this myth that multiple giraffes had been shipped to the university and there were multiple kiddie pools at one point that the giraffes were being stored in. And it turns out that the story was true in the sense that a single giraffe had been shipped. It had been put into a kiddie pool on top of the science building so that the flesh could decompose. I'm sorry that I'm doing this on your food podcast, Alan, but you asked. Um, I did ask. It's my fault. uh, You did ask. And, uh, but yeah, it, um, for me, it was it was a, a humorous turn for that story that came out of this single listener question. Um, so I think sometimes those are the best kinds of stories that you can get into, where it starts with a really, really simple inquiry and just evolves into something much, much more. Right. I saw you did uh, you did a story on why there there's a sign with kilometers uh there in louisville which is an oddity in kentucky certainly it is an oddity correct and uh, many other such stories it's it was uh, there were always fun segments to to check out uh even from somebody from out in lexington but uh i saw that you one of your news stories uh, at the time of this interview one of your news stories at salon was about gross kitchens. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) Sure. So um, this piece was based on a tweet that I saw actually by a chef who was living in the Seattle area. And 
you know, I don't have too many connections to Seattle. So it was a, a little bit strange for this to pop up on my, my feed. But she described the working conditions at a kitchen that she had gone and done her first shift at. And uh, there were some gross things that she allegedly saw that she pointed out. So there was raw chicken being cut in an area that it shouldn't have been. There were dirty knives that were supposedly being put up on the mag strip to be used back in the the prep station again. Um, Meat that was thawing out in a sealed bag inside the mop sink. So then hashtag mop meat was trending on Twitter. It wasn't great. Um, So I was curious, one, why this... This little bit of drama that at one point would have been restricted to people talking about it locally, like, oh, I'm not sure we want to go to this place or not. It had sort of exploded in that it was being shared all over the place. And this also wasn't the first time that I had seen an ex-kitchen employee who, after they had been fired or quit, decided to sort of blow the whistle, if you will, on the working conditions in their kitchen. And I had complicated feelings about it because... I reached out to the owners of this restaurant and they brought up the point that, hey, you know what, we are an open kitchen. People can see what's happening inside. We have received stellar reviews from the health department for the five to six years that we've been open. And all of this could be undone within 15 minutes because this tweet uh, was sent out with these photos and they didn't really have any recourse. On the other hand, I do believe that people have a right to know what the conditions of the kitchens that they're being served food from are actually like. And there was a point that was brought up by this woman who initially sent out the two photos that a lot of times in Seattle and King County, the health inspected, uh, sorry, the inspections from the health department are on a scheduled basis. So it's twice every year during a very specific time. So people could ostensibly prep for that. And then I, I can't imagine the kitchen the would do that. Right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lax practices at other points during the year. So that was kind of the framework for this piece, but it also allowed me the opportunity to take a look into kind of some guilty pleasure TV that I feel a little bit bad about watching things like kitchen nightmares, for example. Right. Yes, and I've, I've seen that always, before. Right. And there's always this um, big dramatic swelling music as Gordon Ramsay is tearing through the basement of the kitchen and just cockroaches yeah, are flying with everywhere. A, with a, uh, a catfish place in Memphis or something like that, where he went in and, and it hadn't been updated in you know 40 years or something like that. Right. And just gross, grimy conditions. And it's like a train wreck. You can't look away. You want to, but you can't. And I uh, was used this piece as an opportunity to explore maybe why we feel that way and why this local drama in Seattle had made its way across the country and that you had celebrity chefs that were, were tweeting about it, you know? Well, you know, everybody likes to see what the scores are uh, for the health department, What's what restaurants are on probation or if some place gets closed and uh, you know what what their reaction is on the on the flip side of that though those of us who like sort of hole in the wall restaurants a lot of times they're sort of your favorite places aren't they the ones that are a little bit questionable absolutely well and i think too something that i really tried to stress in this piece is 
a lot of the things that a kitchen can get written up for are the things that we are guilty of in our own kitchen. So, you know, as I'm sitting here speaking with you, I have an, a cup without a lid, without a straw. It's not in an enclosed container. But if I was drinking this while prepping in a professional kitchen, that would be a health code violation or, you know, the way that <laughs> I keep my own fridge. It is not restaurant quality. I am not the neatest person in the world. And a, a health inspector would open up my fridge right now and shut my kitchen down, to be frank. So, right. So, you know. I, mean, I, I think that's right. We have, I mean, obviously professional kitchens, places where the public is going to eat have to be kept to, to a high level. There has to be a high level there, but at the same time, there has time, to be a standard. Exactly. We also have to understand that we are holding them to a much different standard than we ourselves are completely comfortable with at home. And I'm not saying that that's, right. that that's bad, that they be held to a different standard, obviously. But uh, we we can put up with a lot at our house uh, and not think anything about it. Right. Well, one of the most interesting bits of information that I came across is that if a pair of flies is spotted, at least in some municipalities, a pair of flies is spotted within a restaurant, they can be cited for a rodent problem. And, you know, you kind of think about your, right, two flies. You think about that, your house in the summer, Alan, you know, your your kitchen could be shut down. Oh, probably at any moment, (laughs) in fact. Right. Uh, So I will, will will not delve too deeply there. I will not be posting any any tweets from the um, from the the scary pictures from my kitchen for sure. Well, they'll they'll always be Instagram ready before I post anything. So, right. Well, and I think that was where this piece was a useful opportunity to sort of pull on some of these threads where, you know, we see dramatizations of kitchen and kitchen conditions, and we see tweets that are taken out of context. But again, something like that could shut down a kitchen that has been working seamlessly for five to six years. And, you know, it's, it's a competitive industry. And it kind of broke my heart that final quote from the restaurant owner in Seattle, who's like, I've been doing this five to six years, and it could be over in 15 minutes. And right. That, yeah, that's exactly that's the, you know, you're always hoping that something that you do positively will go viral, and you'll benefit, especially restaurants are trying to build viral momentum from a sort of guerrilla marketing standpoint, but that, that can really be used against them too. Right. And we've, we've all seen it. Uh, people who say the wrong thing and, you know, get on the plane. And by the time they get back off the plane, they've lost their job and they are fired. <laughs> right. And, and never to be heard from again, at least under that legal name. But, uh, you know, the it's certainly a, a double-edged sword. And I, I saw that they, of course, that they were arguing that it was a disgruntled employee and, it, you know, their their point that it was an open kitchen is seems to be a pretty strong point. Obviously, I've, I've never been to the restaurant in Seattle, but you can certainly see the other side. But in the viral tweet world, it, it's it's hard to get to get a correction or get a an alternative viewpoint out there exactly right to where you know these moments they live in single tweets what are we at i think you get 280 characters now because twitter is generous They, they, they double the size of a tweet so for an entire restaurant's history to be summed up in that 
short an instance, um, I, I think that's dangerous territory, frankly. You know, that, and I think that is an important thing for food bloggers and Instagrammers and reporters to remember. I have always tried to take a fairly forgiving and positive attitude with restaurants. Uh, I, I try to show the positive side of places if I'm doing an Instagram photo or something. And I've been to places that did not impress me. And I will sometimes just decide maybe, maybe I'll wait next till next time, but. Right. Maybe no news is good news correct. in that sense. And because I feel know. like, uh, and I've, I've consciously made this choice because I've seen where Yelp reviewers and, and even in some places, uh, bloggers will catch a place maybe at a bad moment, a bad time, and they will just rip them when you're dealing with somebody's livelihood here. You know, this these are people who've put their money, who put their investment, who put their time into a restaurant, maybe it's their dream place that they finally been able to put together. And you go in and sort of haphazardly or casually tear them down, it can do some real damage to people. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And it reminds me, um, this was a story that broke several years ago, but there was that woman from North Dakota, Marilyn Haggerty, she wrote for the paper there. She was a columnist. And she went and she reviewed the chain restaurants in the area just with the utmost sincerity. So oh, I, uh, I think it was her Olive Garden review that went viral. Yes. And um, I know a lot of people wanted to poke fun at her, but I was really, really, um, I, I feel like there was something to be taken from her sincerity because I think it's really easy to mock things, be ironic um, at the expense of people who are trying their hardest you know, and I'm not sure that, you know, Olive Garden is a corporate chain behind it. Uh, it's always easy to be snarky, and, and I certainly have my own guilt in that area. But I do try to tread lightly when I'm dealing with with food places. One of, one of the things I wanted to do with Eat Kentucky was to shine a positive light, and that's not to be dishonest about the situation, but I'm not interested in in tearing any place down. I remember actually the the lady you're talking about who did the the Olive Garden re- reviews and so forth that Anthony Bourdain yes, was actually very yeah. supportive of her and was critical of her critics. Right. He wrote the foreword to, I think she had done a compilation, a series of essays actually about food, or maybe it was a collection of the pieces that she had done for her column. And I thought that was a really, really endearing gesture on his part. Uh, very much so. I, our society can can benefit a lot from pausing and taking a breath, I think, uh, a lot of times on on the instant outrage, whether it's dealing with restaurants or anything else. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your your food stories. Uh, one of the things that I know you uh, that you had focused on with one of your stories at WFPL was on Japanese food, but Japanese food in Kentucky. So uh, tell me about why Japanese food in Kentucky. What's significant about that? 
While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job, and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. When I'm not eating or posting about food, I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. Tell me about why Japanese food in Kentucky. What's significant about that? So I lived in Lexington briefly while I was uh, pursuing, it ended up being half of a master's degree. And um, one of the things that I was shocked about is the number of Japanese convenience stores and the number of really authentic sushi places run by people who were actually from Japan. And it started out as just uh, sort of a curious curiosity on my own part of why are there so many for the size of a city like Lexington. So I started digging in and I spoke with um, a woman named Akemi Aguchi who runs a yummy Japanese market. I'm not sure if you've been there. You live in Lexington. It's a great little strip mall joint uh, in Southeast Lexington. And she talked about how a lot of her friends had immigrated to the Georgetown, Kentucky area outside of Lexington when, in 1985, Toyota announced that they would be opening their first manufacturing location, their first manufacturing plant within the United States. And from that decision, just all of these great Japanese restaurants and Japanese convenience stores ended up opening up as a way to cater to this new immigrant population that was within the area. And I just thought that was a really, really great story about how an immigrant group can change the cultural fabric of a city where they end up for the better, which I feel like is a message that is timeless and needed right now. Uh, yes, the Japanese presence in Lexington is very interesting. I've not been to the market that you mentioned in the story, but there is a market called DY Market that is in uh, on Clay's Mill and the Stonewall area, which people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Know know where that is and I've been in there multiple times uh and it's you know it's it's a fascinating place to visit and there are lots of not just food but lots of little I guess knickknacks and so forth from in fact the last Christmas I purchased some odds and ends for the girls my daughter's stockings and so forth just uh I mean because you can find things there you cannot find in it well anywhere else uh it's it's really like being transported to a different place when you go in these shops. Sure. Yeah. But I saw, uh, interestingly that I think in your article, you said 47% of all foreign investment in the state of Kentucky comes from Japan. Is that right? That's correct. Right. So that was an amazing figure. It was. And um, I think what's amazing is that there is a really vibrant Japan America Society. So it's a, a cultural exchange organization. And one of the most active branches is in Lexington, Kentucky. And mm-hmm. I just don't think that a lot of people, um, you know, I certainly, and I lived in the city for a brief period of time, I did not know that. And I'm not sure that people outside of Kentucky would think that. I think they would maybe pinpoint a city in California for having that high amount of investment with Japan or maybe New York potentially, but would not consider Georgetown, 
Kentucky or Lexington, Kentucky. No, I think that's right. It, interestingly enough, my next door neighbors are uh, J- uh, Japanese professors, as in they, they teach Japanese uh, oh, at yeah. university at UK. And um, they told me that they were in Japan. Maybe it was last year, but they were in Japan and a friend of theirs invited them to a reception where Matt Bevan was going to be because he was visiting Japan, I assume, to help shore up this 47% uh, of investment. But they were interested in going because they were told there would be bourbon available, not because they were interested in and seeing Matt Bevan. I don't know that they actually spoke to Matt Bevan, but but it was an interesting connection because they happened to be in Japan and then the governor of Kentucky uh, was was ha- holding a reception there. I think it may have been at the at the U.S. Embassy or something. But. See, that's delightful. Yeah, I mean, um, I think if presented the choice between going for bourbon or going for Bevan, the choice is clear. But uh, <laughs> that so. was their thought, certainly. That, uh, but but I believe they did they did go. So, uh, uh, because they were interested in that. I know, um, I know another one of the stories that you had touched on, which, uh, which is an interesting one because speaking sort of as, I guess it was a segue from bourbon, uh, in Japan is whiskey production, but sort of non-traditional whiskey production, because we're so used to hearing about bourbon, uh, in Kentucky for obvious reasons. And uh, you wrote some about quinoa whiskey. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And I think what was interesting now, is, is, me, is quinoa whiskey healthier for you? It is not. Know. Right. I know that was a question okay. that we were all batting around. Um, and it's funny because this story had uh, both this story and the story that you just mentioned had legs on a national level, but this quinoa whiskey story made it into a riddle on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which was really exciting. Oh, so, wow. Really? Right. That, yes. Now, I, I was completely unaware of this. So now I've got to hear more about that. This, we will, this we will return to that. Yes. That's right. <laughs> this is trumped everything else. Right, right. So um, I think what was interesting to me is that I was at the liquor store, I was with my boyfriend, and we were looking for just interesting things to bring home. And he is the one who actually pulled off uh, this bottle by Corsair Distillery. And he's like, did you know that quinoa whiskey was a thing? And I had absolutely no idea. So I started investigating and I reached out because initially I was just going to do kind of a story of like, hey, this thing exists what do we think of it? What is the taste profile like? Um, but it led to a more interesting story about um, TTB regulations. So that's the Treasury Department's Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, the TTP, TTB. And for the longest time, they would only allow things to be classified as whiskeys if they contained the four specific crops that under federal law are defined as grains. So that's corn, wheat, rye, and barley. And this is a regulation that just within the last year has been relaxed to actually allow people to use alternative grains or what they refer to as pseudo cereals like quinoa to pseudo cereal is an interesting designation, right? It's, it's like, a great it's not word. really a cereal. cereal. It's just it's sort of like a cereal. It's cereal adjacent, um, okay. right? <laughs> and. Uh, to actually use those in the distillation process and still label your product as whiskey. Um, So that was really, really fun to dig into because I'm fascinated by, 
you know, you just, you think of craft distillers that sort of have their hands tied by this antiquated law that hadn't been looked at in decades and decades and decades. And you have craft distillers who are wanting to become more inventive with what they are making. But then you also have people that are like, eh, we're not really sure how to define it. Um, It ties into a story that I'm actually working on currently. It's on my agenda for this evening about a distiller out of Connecticut who is wanting to make hemp whiskey. So whiskey using hemp seeds uh, in addition to uh, corn and wheat. It is interesting. So um, it's only available there. I've not been able to taste it yet. But similarly, this distiller, and this is a piece that's coming out on Salon, it'll either be later this week or early next, uh, felt like his hands were tied by the TTB because they're like, whoa, we're, we're not really sure how to label this product that you're making. The man was keeping him down. Exactly. The man was keeping him down. And uh, he wasn't able to get his, his hemp whiskey onto shelves until recently because of it. Well, the, I mean, you mentioned the antiquated laws, and I can see how I suppose these were set up after Prohibition, I guess. I don't know Correct. what the timeline would be on that. But uh, that, that they would have just been looking at what they, what they would expect people to make whiskey from i suppose just that in in 1930 they weren't getting fancy on it correct Um, it was right it was the the basic stuff so it 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 took modern hipsters to come up with quinoa whiskey (laughs) indeed right buffalo trace has uh apparently is issuing a amaranth bourbon with amaranth as a secondary uh grain and they are billing the amaranth as the grain of the gods. So I guess this is an experimental collection that, that Buffalo Trace is doing. I don't know if it's anything they're going to do again or not. I don't know. I'm curious about it because anytime that I've had amaranth in a spirit, so still within the spirit or actually within a cocktail, I really like the flavor element that it adds. It's kind of this complexity that's like, I don't know. It's kind of like butterscotchy, but a little bit spicy as well. And um, it also has like a, a pecan flavor, which I'm really, really into. Mm. So I know that some people aren't necessarily excited about all the modifications that are being made to just, you know, good old whiskey or good old bourbon. But um, I think it's fun to try new things. And I really, really enjoy doing cocktails at home. So if there's a spirit that maybe I wouldn't drink it straight, maybe I wouldn't drink it on the rocks, but I could incorporate it into a cocktail. I think that's a lot of fun. So, Well, you're certainly seeing a lot of experimentation. Uh, and I think there will always be plenty of the regular stuff. So it's not going to, it's not going to cut down on the supply, but it's, uh, it can always, I mean, just like with restaurants, you've, you're going to have experimentation and that's good. You're always going to have the old standbys that people can rely on, I think. Absolutely. Definitely. So let's back up just a little bit because you <laughs> mentioned something that we need to explore and that is this brush with, with great fame by, by having a connection to wait, wait, don't tell me. So that's correct. Do, so instead of don't tell me, tell me, I want to hear. I will indeed. So um, I think we should preface by, I, I am a huge public radio nerd. I was growing up, I you know realized my dream of actually getting to work for a 
local NPR affiliate, which is my, this is my point to plug to people who are listening, please donate to your public radio affiliates. They do a big, big service. So you guys have WUKY, WEKU, there's FPL here in Louisville, a lot of great stations. But um, one of the shows that I remember listening to through high school into college was Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Which, and it, it's a very fun show. Yes. So it's a series of riddles and they bring on really interesting guests and there's audience participation. It's hosted by Peter Sagel, who is a ton of fun. And um, they do a limerick challenge, typically every episode. And the limerick that my story was included in, I pulled it up here. So it goes, we think grassy grain liquor will seem blah. Grab a large rock of ice and a clean straw. Slip a gluten-free malt from the Peruvian vaults. We're making our whiskey from. And then Peter Sagal responded, it's a tough one. You may not know this. And then they went ahead and gave it to the guest and it was quinoa. Quinoa finished the limerick. And uh, they uh, spoke about my story, which was a really, really big moment. Oh, very nice. Well, you can pretty much retire at this point, I would think. It's true. I'm 25. I've peaked. I'm done. You know. No you, more. I, because, you, I mean, the odds of you of you getting on, wait, wait, don't tell me, as a, as a limerick answer is, it, I mean, I, I don't want to don't burst your bubble. It's pretty small that that's going to happen again. So um, to have reached it's true. I, point, I hope to host the show at some point. But, you know, aside sure. from that, I have nothing left to look forward to in life. <laughs> well, you must soldier on. So. <laughs> But that that's a really cool that's a really cool thing. I'm I'm glad you told me told us about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've not I've not gotten to brag on it quite enough. So this is a an apt opportunity to do so. So we're talking on a podcast, but you yourself are working on your own podcast, I saw uh on on Facebook. So we are e friends, and so I uh, saw that you had posted about that. And I'm very curious because the concept that you alluded to uh, sounded very interesting. And I'm sure the listeners would be glad to know the details so they can listen to, to your podcast as well. Sure. So it's called Shelved and it is about the snack foods that we loved but are no longer available uh, on, on shelves. They were taken off the market and I have been thinking about this idea for the past couple of years. And then once I quit my job at the public radio station here in Louisville, I realized that I really, really missed audio work, um, despite the fact that I love what I do right now. So I thought this would be a good time, kind of on my, my own time during my free time to explore it. And I have been slowly putting together the first season. They are bite-sized episodes. They come in at about 10 minutes each. And the first season is slated to have six episodes and um, a couple of the topics are Dunkaroos, which I'm not sure if you remember those, but you know, the little cookies that you would dip into frosting, those Mm -hmm. were taken off the market and there ended up being a, uh, a cross country smuggling operation. People actually brought Ah. them back from Canada and called the initiative Smuggleroos. So you can listen more on that. That's very exciting. So we have, we have intrigue. There's intrigue. I have found some really, really ardent fans. So there is a guy who calls himself the PB Crisps fanatic because he is obsessed with PB Crisps, the uh, old planner snack. And then I'm also taking a look at some beverages like 
uh, Pepsi Blue that are no longer on the shelves, but have kind of like an enduring legacy in pop culture and nostalgia in people's minds. And um, I'm currently shopping that podcast around. So uh, once I find out where it is going to be living in the in the near future, uh, I will update people. But if they are curious, you can follow me on Twitter at um, at sign shelved snacks. That's a place to follow. follow me. Um, that is a place to follow where shelved is going to end up. And then there's also a shelved Facebook page as well. Well, I will certainly put uh, appropriate links in show notes for those things. So people can, uh, can find you because it sounds intriguing. I, I think all of us have those, those snacks, those things we remember that aren't there anymore that were maybe just a flash in the pan. We love them, but apparently no one else did. Right. So uh, let me ask you a question about that. Are, are there sort of underground bunkers of, of some of these things that people have a, you know, sort of a gray or black market for, or are they just, are they completely gone and, and live only in people's nostalgic recollections or, or what's the, what's the situation with those snacks? So it depends on the snack, but um, as I mentioned, Dunkaroos, for example, they were taken off the shelves in America before they were taken off the shelves in Canada. There was about a two year disparity there. And uh, so there was kind of like a, a gray market, if you will, of people that would, you know, toss a bunch in their trunks. They would come across the border and then they would sell them to people uh, at, festivals and that kind of thing which i think so is a lot it, was, of fun. it was kind of like prohibition all over again I mean, exactly so were, you know sort of an al capone of dunkaroos was was bringing things into the country and well and you think about these snacks none of them are particularly good for you like they, they have well, almost an infinite shelf life so yes i'm I mean, hoping that's sort to of, find right it's a defining quality of all good snacks right that it's it's that it, it they they can never decay because they're just sort of sort of they frozen are. in time, right? Frozen in time, frozen in our memories, and um, I am I'm on the hunt definitely for people who maybe they stocked up on PB crisps from the '90s, and they have a doomsday esque bunker that is just stocked full of them. I, I would love to meet that person. I'm on the hunt for those kinds of people, um, and I'm. Uh, I'm hoping to find some through this. I, I, su- I suspect that they're out there, and uh, once word gets out that you're that you're looking for them, you may be inundated with uh, with people sort of hiding behind corners. And I hope so. You know, I surely hope so. Dressed in trench coats, kind of urging <laughs> you to come into alleyways and right. and talk. So. Well, that well, we look forward to that project. I'm thank you. Uh, I uh, am curious about how it's going to turn out. So you are, you are a native Kentuckian. Is that correct? That's incorrect. No, oh, I. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm You're from an Chicago. Import. Oh, I'm an import. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I moved here to go to college, where I went to uh, Bellarmine University, okay. and I thought that I would move back to the. Chicago area when I graduated, but I ended up getting that job in public radio and that kept me here. I see. I see. Now, when I first started seeing your articles, I believe you were doing some writing for, was it The Guardian? In 
I've done some writing for The Guardian. Yeah, my first piece for them was actually about uh, that diner here in Louisville, the Twig and Leaf, where I tried a hot breath. And yes, I think that 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 may have been the first article of yours that I remembered seeing. And at the time, I was very curious why an article about a Louisville diner was in The Guardian. And so I had sort of decided in my mind that you must be some sort of expat who was hanging out in Kentucky for some reason. But but really, you were just from Chicago. So, right. Nope. I, uh, <laughs> I am, uh, I'm here. I think I've been in Louisville long enough for the city to claim me, but I don't have an answer to where did you go to high school, which is a oh, well, important, yes. important question. That, that is an important question. That's right. So, so well, you were in Lexington for a while. You were here at least for, for some months, a year or so. Uh, Correct. How, how do you, how do you compare the Lexington food scene versus the Louisville food scene and understanding, of course, obviously Louisville is larger and is going to have more going on. That's certainly the case, but Lexington seems to be doing pretty well from the perspective on boots on the ground here. So, Absolutely. You know, and I think what I really love about both cities is that we have chefs that are committed to taking local ingredients and interpreting them in different ways. So you will have Wida Michelle, who I love her and love her food. She does fantastic stuff. Absolutely amazing. And then one of my favorite chefs here in Louisville is Chef Ed Lee. We Also um, amazing. Fantastic. And, you know, so I think uh, looking at both cities critically, I think there are more places of overlap. I think the Venn diagram, the overlapping section between Louisville and Lexington is growing um, to where Lexington, and I think for a while, people probably considered to be sort of like a little brother, a little sister to the Louisville area. But the craft beer scene in Lexington is booming. I love West Sixth. That is, um, they produce some of the my favorite beer. Uh, well, and Wida, Wida has uh, Smithtown food that's just sort of attached there to that. As right. Well. Yeah. So um, I think Louisville, if I'm drinking, I'm drinking bourbon or brandy, actually, because we've got Copper and Kings here. And then when I'm in Lexington, I'm drinking beer. So that's a big difference. And then, uh, you know, Louisville, I've lived here for longer at this point. So I have places that are just kind of my go-to sure. haunts when I'm home, in. Home town haunts exactly lexington though when i was living there doodles was a uh, mm-hmm, sure. place that i would go every weekend um absolutely loved it because they have a biscuit that is the size of you know both your fists kind of bowled <laughs> up um yeah so i i think that louisville lexington are actually growing more similar which is is neat yeah i, I think that um uh, getting back we were talking about bourbon earlier i think that the the bourbon the distilleries, the bourbon industry, the bourbon trail is uh, maybe forming a a connection between them because most of the distilleries are sort of, uh, obviously there are some that are Louisville-based and a couple here that are Lexington-based, but most of them are kind of in between. Right. You've got uh, Frankfurt, you've got Bardstown, you've got... Right. So they, you know, understandably kind of play the to both, to both areas. Uh, and, you know, it would be interesting to explore how, how those, um, 
how those distilleries are are connecting. For example, getting back to Wida, uh, she is chef in residence at at uh, at Woodford, um, and of course they are very heavily involved. For example, with the Derby, uh, right? And so I know Wida goes and does. Um, and goes to the Derby and she's there for the Derby and, you know, they're preparing food and, and so forth. So you have uh, the bourbon industry acting to some degrees as a, as a conduit between Lexington and Louisville with, with different chefs, I think. I think that's a really astute observation. And I think too, when you have, Big events that draw people together. So I think about, you know, opening week at Caneland, you've got the Kentucky Derby, as you mentioned here in Louisville, you've got, you know, competitive sports scenes in in both cities. I've Um, I've heard about that. Right, right. Um, You know, basketball's maybe a thing here and uh, Louisville, Lexington. Um, But I, I definitely see how bourbon brands are associated with these events and associated with the people that are sort of underpinning these events and the industries like the horse racing industry and bourbon, they are um, right. inextricably tied. And I, yes, I think so. obviously. So, I mean, there, you do have rivalries even, I think, uh, at least, you know, with city identification with Keeneland and Churchill Downs and so forth, but it's the same trainers. It's the same horses. It's, uh, and a lot of times I think it's the same chefs who obviously in Louisville, you're going to have Louisville chefs be highlighted more Lexington, Lexington chefs. But I I still think there's a lot of cross pollination that happens because of the, the bourbon industry and the horse industry. Right. Well, and then I think too, I'm not from, you know, originally from either city, uh, but having lived in both, I'm just kind of a team Kentucky fan all around, you know, like team Kentucky is the state. And uh, I, um, there's that great brand Kentucky for Kentucky where you can just get stuff that is state branded. And uh, I really appreciate that. In fact, I will confess to wearing one of their t-shirts at this very moment, are you? Yes, Which one? I, it's the one with just the big KY on it. So it's a, sure, right? Uh, yeah, it's a. It is a an extremely comfortable T-shirt to uh, to knock around the house in, and uh, I. I mean, they do they do great work, and obviously have have a great sense of humor as well about what they're doing. But definitely, uh, but you know their their goal, like I was talking about earlier about. Showing showing people and and eateries in a positive light, I think that you know, that's their goal too. And I think obviously Kentucky suffers from a lot of stereotypes and mischaracterizations from outside. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy on that, but I think that there's a there's so much positive here that it's nice to see people highlighting it. And that's obviously what, what I want to do here as well. Absolutely. Well, and I, I do think that the bourbon boom has done really good things for Kentucky and putting the state in the limelight for something that, you know, during the seventies and the eighties, brown liquor was kind of your grandfather's drink. And then people look at bourbon now as, new and hip, but also has this, you know, decades, age-long tradition of, um, 
you know, it, it tastes amazing. The process is historic and people are absolutely fascinated by it now. So that's done really good things for the state, as has sort of this emphasis on new Southern cuisine, which I know people can kind of roll their eyes at. But Kentucky chefs, again, like Rita Michelle and Ed Lee have done really, really great things about taking local Kentucky ingredients and emphasizing them and highlighting them in new ways. So I think actually the food and liquor scene in the state has done really, really good things for the state's image as a whole. Yes, I think I think you see uh, a lot of, I made a disparaging remark about hipsters earlier, but uh, you, uh, there've been sort of a hipster appeal to Kentucky that, and I mean that in a positive way. I don't mean it negatively at all. It's, but it, it, there's a lot about Kentucky that has become cool and that's not a bad thing for the state. Right. Like one of my favorite events, it's put on at Stitzel Weller um, every, every year, every couple of years. And it is the pimento cheese social that they do (laughs) where, you know, you can kind of roll your eyes at the fact that there's this twee bar cart that's serving these precious bourbon beverages and people are eating a variety of pimento cheese in different ways. And I think from the outside, you could definitely look and roll your eyes and be like, Oh God, this is such a hipster event. But it also is a um, ton of fun. And it also highlights some of the best things that we have here in Kentucky. And um, yeah, it's, it's worth enjoying. I, I definitely feel like some things that are classified by people as hipsters. Um, it, it's, they're a lot of fun, you know? I think that's right. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of times the, the hipster crowd knows a good restaurant, you know, and so uh, Indeed. I, as a, as a Gen Xer rather than a millennial, I will say that I, I have cheered on the, the fact that I think the millennials are by and large responsible for, for killing Applebee's, for example. <laughs> I, I don't, in favor of local places. I mean, that's not a bad thing. I would much rather. No, I must confess that I've written about Applebee's in the past, actually. Um, oh, well, it was well for- please share, share with that. <laughs> so it was for Paste Magazine uh, back in the day. And it was about, um, there was a brief period of time. This would have been uh, around 2010, 2011. The company wanted to appeal to a younger demographic. So at some locations post 11 p.m., they would stay open from 11 p.m. till 2-ish, 3-ish, depending on the liquor licenses within that city. And they classified themselves as the bees. Do you uh, remember this? I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember that. The bees. So that's, that's very, the bees. That's very with it. And um, they would actually, for some of the signs, they would just turn off the apple portion and leave oh, bees. Oh, nice. Nice. Right. And things got crazy at some locations. I remember going through and finding archived newspaper articles about a particular Applebee's or bees, I suppose, in Orlando, where the cops had to be called because they were spraying whipped cream onto oh, their customers oh and things were getting, I know, racy at the Applebee's. And uh, so I took my brother who um, he's about a year younger than I am. And he's been my partner in crime for a lot of really silly articles and we found an Applebee's that was open late night and we went to see what the the vibe was going to be like, whether it was going to appeal to, you know, friends in our age demographic. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was Applebee's after hours. Um, 
there were some people hanging out at the bar. The appetizers were basically the same. Um, so I don't think that it totally succeeded in doing it what they hoped that it would do. I, I, you know? I can't imagine that, uh, that that was really going to work. But Right. In fact, I used to, uh, I lived in, in Kansas City for a few years and Applebee's is based in Kansas City. So I lived, oh, I didn't know I, well, that. I, yeah. I didn't either before I moved there. And, but I used to drive by the, the headquarters of Applebee's all along and it was just uh, you know, fairly visible place. But, uh, you know, Kansas City is kind of an appropriate place, I guess, for Applebee's to be based. But, uh, but in Kansas City, you'd much rather want, uh, much rather eat the barbecue than you would want to eat the eat at Applebee's. I think, but sure, sure. But I, you know, it's 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 a positive move, and I know that um, maybe it's been overplayed in some instances, local foods and so forth, uh, or the way they're portrayed. But it is for Kentucky. I think it's important because it is a way for the economy uh, to be stimulated, but also for uh, our own products to be celebrated. And as I said, it's in so many ways, Kentucky products have not been in the past and Kentucky as a state has not been. But I think that there's so much here to offer in a positive way. And one of the things, like with we mentioned Kentucky for Kentucky earlier, you know, Kentuckians like to celebrate Kentucky, and I think that's a positive thing. I can't can't think of anything really better to do than that. I absolutely agree. Well, Ashley, I want to thank you for spending some time uh, with me today and uh, giving some fun moments for our listeners. Tell me where uh, they can find you on social media, where they can access your work and keep up with you. Sure. So on a day-to-day basis, you can find me at Salon. I am in the culture and food sections there. And then if you want to check out past stuff, there is www.ashleystevens.com or follow me on Twitter at at Ashley, A-S-H-L-I-E. My parents got creative, so it's Ashley D underscore Stevens. Gotcha. So those are the best places to access my work. Very good. And I will include uh, links to those places in show notes as well so people can easily track you down. And we look forward to not only your work at Salon, but also your shelved podcast that's coming up. That's going to be thank fun. You. So thank you very thank you, much you. for being with us today. And hopefully you can join us again sometime. Would love that. All right, Alan, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Eat Kentucky podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you can be notified of new episodes. And please consider giving a five-star rating. It helps others find the podcast. You can find Eat Kentucky on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please give us a follow so you can keep up with all my explorations of Kentucky food. The Eat Kentucky musical theme is by Art Mize and Diane Timmons. And remember, if you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I would love to help you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett. Thank you.